Ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek 5'11", 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous 5'11", 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. Uh, it's a beautiful autumn right now and our friends at Manscaped want to make sure it's beautiful when your pants fall. Doesn't work as well when we use autumn and not fall, but anyway, here we are. Don't let the trees be the only thing dropping their excess leaves and give your trunk the look it deserves with the leaders in male grooming and their fourth generation performance package. Boys, get your baby makers ready for a cuffing season like no other and join the four million men worldwide using Manscaped by going Manscaped going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code PeakSpeak. Seal the deal with Manscaped's liquid formulations, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver to keep your pumpkin spiced. <laughs> I didn't read ahead. Keep your pumpkin spiced the right way all for long. It's so funny because my favorite Starbucks drink is like a pumpkin spice latte, like a extra girl. You are so extra. I love it. But you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code PeakSpeak at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code uh, PeakSpeak at Manscaped.com. Make sure you have the best package for your package and choose Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. My sincerest apologies to the listeners if the first part of that, my audio was washed out, the audacity mic volume was way up. I, I just realized. Um, what it is, fine to me. What is cuffing season? I have no idea, and I'm not going to Google it. I am. Cuffing season. Okay. Well, while you... you're doing that, I'm going to talk about the fact that I have been drinking the Colombian Miller Bustos. I don't know if that needs the accent or not. From our good friends at Prism Coffee Co. It is a wash process Colombian, syrupy, sweet, nectarine, apricot flavors. Delicious with some milk, but also fantastic uh, black if that's your jam uh, and you can save yourself some dollars by going and spending dollars with our friends at Prism Coffee Co using the code PeakSpeak. Why do you have to say it like that? I don't know. Seemed like the right way to do it and um, we're here now and you're just going to have to deal with it. All right. Well, I've done extensive research and I don't know how comfortable I am about cuffing season now. <laughs> <laughs> cuffing season refers to a period of time where single people be begin looking for short term partnerships to pass the colder months of the year. So it's essentially just banging people while it's cold. <laughs> Surely short-term relationships doesn't work in quite as well in that scenario because what you really need to battle the cold is not intermittent casual partnerships but someone to like spend Cuddle. long amounts of time snuggled next to. And surely if you're banging multiple people or is it suggesting you're finding one person to bang over winter? I don't know. Either way, as someone who's been in a long-term relationship for a long term, I don't feel like cuffing season's relevant to me anymore. No, plus you have like a 400 kilo mastiff to lie on top of you if you need. Yeah, well, that does help. Um, <laughs> he is quite warm in a somewhat oppressive way. I've got a 17 kilo whippet that requires a jumper as soon as it drops below like 25 degrees. Mm. And he gets quite dramatic about it. He comes and looks at you with his tail between his legs just shivering. He's like... <laughs> 
I need my jumper now. I'm like, fuck, great. I got you. Yeah, my brother's got a greyhound who's in jackets constantly, but also has like a heated electric blanket that is just oh, on 24 hours a day on so the couch cute. at his house. Yeah, it's pretty adorable. Oh, the skivvies are the best. Greyhound skivvies. Italian greyhound skivvies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Makes they are the world pretty adorable. Better. It does. Um, welcome back. How did uh, how did the novice comp go? And more importantly, were you impressed by by my guy Rin, who won? Yeah, uh, or who got a Rin, medal? I don't know Rin how you was, do your yeah, things. Yeah, these so days. Rin got our our best lifter award in the men's category. Um, so yeah, we don't do like winners and losers at novice comps because I think it's a fucking waste of time. Uh, so we give like a best lifter award for people that we feel like epitomize what we want to see in powerlifters, people who aren't assholes to the volunteers and are just generally nice to be around, those sort of things. So yeah, Rin ticked all those boxes uh, and more importantly, ticked like several other boxes by turning up on the Saturday to the registration session, having maxed out uh, his luggage uh, capabilities on the flight down, bringing me a box full of uh, long black, ice long black tinnies and like several <laughs> bags of coffee that uh, he roasts, which were delicious. Um, so now I have an excess of coffee in my house, which is never a bad thing. Um, yeah. And a fridge stocked full of ice long black tinnies here. Yeah, he did. He did a technique session with James and gave him a bunch of them yesterday as well. And I always see Jamie. Jamie coaches him out of um, out of Brisbane, and I see yeah, him cool. drinking them all the time. Shout out They're to Rennie. He's, he's such a good dude. Yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah, had a great time. So uh, yeah, really stoked for him. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a really good day. Uh, fucking Stefan, brisket and brawn. Uh, Brought two and a half times the amount of meat he brought last time. Mm. Uh, still sold out in two and a half hours. Oh, he put wow. a single post in a uh, like in a Canberra community, group, community right? Facebook notice group. Uh, and I think he had a line of like 30 something people at 11 a.m. when he opened uh, and sold out in like two and a half hours. So uh, Stefan's very slowly developing a cult following in Canberra, which is not at all a bad thing for me um, because it means he just keeps coming down. Yes. I think next time he's coming down for Ladies of Lifting in July and his plan is to um, set up early and do like a breakfast menu and then a lunch menu as well. Uh, and he's bringing the fryer down to do like loaded tater tots. Oh, so yes. I've already put in an order for beef cheek loaded tater tots for breakfast. And uh, we're going to build on our day from there. So if you want to come down end of July, just come so, down and eat meat. <laughs> I'm, I'm relatively well-traveled and American barbecue is up there with like one of my favorite foods yeah, yeah. on Same. earth. And anytime I'm anywhere in America, I find the best barbecue that I can in whatever yep. city or area that I'm in. And even, you know, I've done the same in Australia. That Stefan is like head and shoulders above anything I've ever had. Like his Dude, food is actually unbelievable. I, if you ever get the pleasure to have something that Stefan's cooked, get yeah. it. Yeah, if you're in Sydney, you can find him at a bunch of different breweries around Sydney. That's predominantly where he serves his meat during the weeks, uh, during the regular season, shall we say. Um, but yeah, he also comes down for our novice comps. Uh, so if you're in Canberra and you want to come eat, eat. Uh, genuinely, like I I put in when we advertised for him, I put like the best barbecue this side of Texas and only because I haven't been to Texas to prove him <laughs> otherwise. But certainly I agree. I am yet to find anyone that does barbecue as consistently, amazingly as Stefan does. Um the fucking confit beef cheeks are genuinely life-changing. Like, he takes these beef cheeks, uh, confits them in beef tallow, so, like, you know, boils them in beef tallow and then smokes them. 
and they are fucking incredible. <laughs> the last time he gave me some, I ate them on mashed potatoes with a spoon, and it was fucking mind-blowing. Amazing. Brisket and Brawn, follow his pages on Instagram, Facebook, and, and yeah. buy some of his meat. You won't regret it. And we have, we literally have no uh, reason to promote this otherwise than we fucking love it. Like, yeah, other not than we're deal. both deep-seated fat fucks who love eating delicious Pretty food. much. Yeah, no, <laughs> there's no contra deal here. We, we haven't spoken to him about doing this. It's just organic. Organic, exactly. Organic. I love it. All um, right. So, because I'm the only one that pulls the weight in this podcast, I've come up with the topic again. Uh, I was having a discussion with someone the other day about using velocity trackers and and bar speed trackers and things like that, which kind of then expanded into a conversation around the potential pitfalls that you can fall into by externalizing your decision-making to an app or a device or a formula or whatever the case may be. And I thought we could have at first a discussion about how some of those sort of tools can be useful in, in the powerlifting context and perhaps training outside of that as well. But then also the, the sort of pros and cons of things like predicted maxes and weight ranges from a coaching standpoint and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, uh, you know a topic that's relevant to to revisit over and over. You know, as we progress through, because information changes, exposure to these ideas changes. Um, obviously, there's a lot of new people that come through our listenership. Yeah. So, um, even though some of the stuff we will talk about, you know, we've mentioned before, you just can't hear enough of it. Um, it helps you make a more informed decision. Helps you understand what's going on out there. Because as the information grows and changes, and the access to information continues to explode it's quite overwhelming and it can be quite tricky to navigate everything and the hard thing with this explosion of information is that it's presented to you as gospel truth as you have to pick one of these options rather than here are the benefits here are the benefits of the other methods that you know go against this or are in competition with this uh, and really you can find benefits and utility in in all of them so um the velocity tracking thing it's not a new concept no it's um, been around for a while yeah and it's kind of ebbed and flowed in the in the lifting world um it just seems that the people that really lean into it lean into it hard uh, mm. and, and are quite evangelistic about that but yeah, i mean you could say the same for rpe prescription for percentage prescription uh it really just comes down to a lived experience of like can you utilize this tool can you get ac- uh, can you get benefit out of it and if it if you do you want to tell everyone about it you know you can you can see where it comes from but yeah yeah for sure um i really like the way that you uh reference that idea of like you know relying on the data and um what's that book you've referenced it a few times unplugged uh yeah unplugged by brian mckenzie and dr andy galpin Side note, we should try and get Andy Galpin on the podcast at some point. He would be a fascinating person. A great chat. And I think loves doing podcasts and shit like this. So, side note. Sam, thanks for reaching out. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I know you've had some experience in actually using it, right? You got sent it by that company. so I've I've used a couple of different velocity trackers over the time. I the first one I had exposure to was the push band, which was one of the first like consumer level velocity trackers because for a long time the the velocity tracking marketplace was uh, dominated by Tendo units and Gymaware, mm-hmm. both of which are like uh, physical accelerometers. So they've got like a string that you attach to the barbell and it measures how fast you pull the string out, right? 
Uh, those are generally like north of two grand each. Um, and predominantly you see them in, or certainly when we were sort of coming up through powerlifting, you saw them more in the like team sports space, uh, especially like in the private sector in the U S um, unless you were one of Mike Tashira's early followers and you watch Mike Tashira carry around his Tendo unit and his laptop to every gym everywhere <laughs> in the world. Um, I think Steve Polsonella tells a funny story about like yeah, not, yeah, not knowing not who knowing Mike who T was. was and seeing him set up all this shit. Um, so yeah, I had a push band, which was like a band that you wore on your forearm and it had like an accelerometer, like your phone has in it, which was interesting. Um, I then had a couple of years later exposure to, uh, it's made by the same company, the gym Aware company, who's a Canberra based company, which is coincidental. Uh, and the fucking name of the thing has completely left my brain. Anyway, it used their idea was to make it an entry level piece of tech and it used light. So it attached to the end of the bar and you had like a reflective mat underneath the bar and it would bounce light off it and give you speed readings based on that. Um, which again was interesting, but I think the the thing I keep coming back to from a powerlifting setting, and and I only ever use them in my own training, like like I do with any tool or new technique or things like that, right? I'm my own experiment first before I go and use it on anyone else. Hmm. Uh, and I enjoyed it because I enjoy the like metric tracking data analysis side of that kind of things, but ultimately I continue to come back to it just being a bit of a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Um, because in both instances you had to like enter the weight that you're about to do with the light based one you had to take it off the bar to change the weights each time things like that that just were more roadblocks in my training process that made the whole experience less enjoyable for me and then from a practical coaching perspective it didn't actually provide any information that i wasn't already inherently aware of in terms of how hard things were mm-hmm. because for me like a it's a new metric right so i don't have any measure of like what a max feels like sorry what a max reads like in terms of meters per second or things like that and i got a bit of a feel for that over time but it was just one of those metrics that i think and I still generally believe this is that to be really effective in a powerlifting context, you need to commit to like several months of mm. accurately tracking everything you do in a really meticulous way to even begin to develop a data set that's useful for you. It's a fun toy. It's it's fun to like play with. I think there's real value in it in a team sports coaching setting where like I've got a group of 25 people that I'm trying to have do squat triples and instead of giving them a percentage because that's less relevant for a team sport, I can say, hey, I want everyone to do sets of three between X and X meters per second and you then that lets them auto-regulate their weight. It adds an element of competitiveness between individuals, things like that. That would be really, really useful but that's not what i do for a living so Mm -hmm. from my point of view it's it's less useful in that context yeah at the end of the day it comes down to what data to decollect and how to use that data to influence your practice and just gathering data for the sake of gathering data is is pretty unhelpful time consuming and it can be confusing and negative yeah yeah Um, however if you collect that data and use it uh, to to track progress to track you know however you're driving that progress then it can become incredibly useful and like john was just saying there's the the, the, there's the burden of um time and and data collection and analysis and so you know there's people well mike t is the perfect example because 
he knows that stuff back to front because he's been doing it for years and years and years. And there's people in Australia that do the same. So uh, Gus Cook, he yeah. um, has been using it for a few years now. Yeah, yeah, and, several. You know, he's had the opportunity then to use it with his lifters, notice trends, and be able to program using this thing. Or um, Scott Hill, Laura Scrow, you know, those guys at Power Elite in yeah. Sydney. Um, they're the same. You know, they, they use this thing, they monitor and measure, and they use that information, uh, as far as I know, to, to, to drive programming from that point. If you just grab one and you start measuring it, it's interesting. Uh, but in, in so many ways, it's just another measure of uh, perceived exertion. So very similar to, to RPE, which an experienced lifter, once they know how to use that scale, will be able to do with a high degree of accuracy. Or at the same time, a like a percentage with an auto regulation built in, which is all just then comes down to how you're driving the program or how's the coach driving the program. So yeah. um, I think it's important to note that because it's not about, you know, it's not about finding the best method. It's about using a method consistently uh, and modifying it, tracking it, improving it over time to drive the best results. Yeah. And like I think any tool that gives you objective data to what is ultimately a subjective experience, right? Mm. Uh, it can be really, really useful at helping you get your eye in, so to speak. Like that's it's a somewhat esoteric concept, but like you and I have a developed coaching eye, right? We know what a good opener looks like in a powerlifting context. We know how much left there is watching a hard second attempt. We can pick good numbers like that. Just because we have a really extensive data set of people pushing right up to and beyond failure. So we have a good eye for what does that bar speed slowdown look like? What does the technique change look like? Things like that. From a, a lifter's perspective, I think things like this can be really useful in developing that skill. So in my own experience in the running space recently, the heart rate's been like that. Mm. So having gone from like just a wrist based heart rate to like a proper chest strap electrical heart rate setup uh i'm now in a space where i'm trying to run without looking at my heart rate like track it the whole time but moderate my effort in a way that keeps me within a heart rate zone by feel rather than by sight because it's really easy to just externalize that completely and not pay any attention to what you're doing and what you feel like and just fucking check your watch every 10 seconds mm. right but then I, I've, and I did that early on because I, especially with running, I had no measure of it, right? I had no frame for how hard does this feel? Cause it all just felt fucking insanely hard to begin <laughs> with. Cause I sucked at running. Right. And now that I'm, I'm okay at it. I can, I can gauge that effort more subjectively and quite accurately myself mm -hmm. based on how I feel from a breathing rate and things like that. But it's because that external device gave me a frame of reference for it. Yes. I'm not convinced that a bar speed tracker does that in quite the same way with the same level of accuracy that you can get with a heart rate monitor because there's a technical aspect that really influences it. Mm -hmm. And the the downside I see with something like bar tracking, uh, velocity tracking is uh, when you start chasing the number, mm -hmm. right? When it becomes like, okay, well, how fast can I make this move? And that comes at a detriment to the skill aspect of the sport, which is so deeply ingrained in being successful in a powerlifting context. Uh -huh. No, I, I love that. That's such a good point because especially, you know, in the powerlifting context, speed is often the enemy of, of 
technical yeah. improvement a technical yeah, yeah. improvement is we've often, all seen speed days where people are just yeah. like doing absolute garbage reps for the sake of moving the bar really quickly yeah when you when you try to move something as quick as you can you revert to your strongest movement pattern and technical training is about improving your strongest movement pattern changing yeah. things which often means making things harder and slower so you can hold position so that yeah. it will translate once you add more load i also love um you know that idea you were talking about uh, of using this 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 measure to internalize or to create feeling it's you often say it you've said it a thousand times on this podcast you don't know what a 10 is until you've gone to 11 and so um you know again the 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 bar tracking uh, or the the velocity tracking sort of ideal can start to show you trends mm. uh but it's important to understand what sort of meaning you ascribe to trends which is why people who are experienced and it should be the ones guiding you through this because they'll be able to tell you, okay, you can see a trend, but that trend doesn't actually mean anything in this context. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, because otherwise you'll look for meaning in everything where there's not meaning. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, or it's like a fake trend, you know? Like you can, you don't see the the outliers in the same way because your data set's not big enough to identify those outliers. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm getting more and more passionate about this discussion around... Uh, around the modern coach and like the ultra theoretical approach versus just practical experience and it's really annoying because you know the way that we grew up in powerlifting so to speak was that we had all these we had all these people that we idolized and then over time as we got smarter we looked at them as like old man yells at cloud kind of deal and now we are that <laughs> we're like yeah that's that's great you know yeah sure you know reactive deloads are, are the best and and uh, proactive deloads are fucking stupid and yada 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 but i coach people who are stronger than you and have done consistently for 10 years so you know who's your daddy kind of thing um and, but you can't say that because it's no. dumb to say uh and so like w it's important for us as more experienced coaches to to be able to look at the the ultra theoretical world and be able to criticize our own methodologies and our own biases that we've the developed for 10 years and be able to so i get challenged a lot because i use percentage-based programming almost exclusively um i build rpe into stuff um especially at the higher end like in peaking it's important yeah, to yeah. have rpe um and i always do proactive deload and so when people challenge me on that well shouldn't you do reactive deload how do you i know what my programming is going to do to someone to the point where the proactive deload is essentially exactly the same as a reactive deload and then I can modify that if I have to, but I very rarely have to because I know how my programming works. Like I've got so much confidence in that. Yeah. And so if someone has a really strong theoretical argument, it's like, yeah, cool, but this works. And I demonstrate it consistently working across the absolute elite and the brand new, and I know how to drive my programming across that spectrum. Why would I change anything? That's easy for me to say or for you to say because we are established and we've got the evidence that shows that we can do what we do with what we have if you're a new coach this is fucking overwhelming it's like oh i'm doing everything wrong this person said that this was better i should switch to this so now i'm going to try this you get no consistency in your approach you get no data you just end up confused all the time it can be really quite difficult yeah and that like for me it's in my approach to programming the changes that happen are so much smaller over a longer time scale now like when i rewrite a program it's not a wholesale complete rewrite from the scratch it's like we take the thing that we know works and we just adjust it a little bit to account for the circumstances right we assess how you went what we need to change based on that but it's not 
you know, we've talked about it in, in various shapes and forms over the last couple of years, that idea of like being bought into someone else's system and it completely changing your approach to everything. Mm. Velocity tracking works the same. Heart rate tracking and endurance stuff works the same. It's, it's when instead of taking the aspects of these things that can be beneficial and integrating them into your process, you make that process your own or you wholesale flip towards it. And that's the trap that I think you and I both fell into at various points in our coaching careers uh, and have only come out the other side through sheer persistence and uh, stubbornness, if you will, um, that... I think some people probably need to fall into a little bit in order to see the downside of it, right? Sometimes you need to go too deep down a rabbit hole and hopefully you run up into yourself and realize your tinfoil hat maybe isn't as productive as you thought it was and come out the other side. But uh, I think there's a lot to be said for both ends of that spectrum in you know, diving full, full scale into someone else's system and seeing it through their vision right like i've i've talked to you for long enough to be able to know pretty well what the zero coach development program involves i've never taken it but i know your thought process well enough to be able to see it from you know for all intents and purposes your eyes and be able to see i can then look at you know the the athletes you have and the the athletes your coaches have and see the decisions that i know you would be making because i know that's how you're your thought pattern works right mm. that uh insight and that context is really useful because then it it starts to help you see i think less of the old man shouts at cloud thing because <laughs> because you have the context for it right like mm. i can see how you would come across as old man shouts at cloud but i can also see the thought process you went through to get to that point yeah um a lot of people don't have that context <laughs> yeah yeah i i actually kind of like it now I, I'm I'm adopting the old man yells at cloud mentality. It's dude, I've I've been the oldest person in my friendship group of <laughs> close friends who are all ten years older than me for quite some time. Um, so I have well and truly lent into the cranky old man uh, approach to things. We had a, a kid come to the novice comp with a serious TikTok following, yeah, uh, and I ha I had to turn the live chat on our YouTube stream off um, because I warned them all once. I was like, children, we will be civilized there's no place for hatred and judgmental comments here and then it kept going and i went fuck yous i'm turning the chat off like a grumpy old prick <laughs> why were they hating range. on the tiktok press uh it wasn't that it was that they were there was a bunch of comments being made about how in certain individuals maybe didn't scope up to what they were expecting from this other person just like shitty i'm a dickhead teenager with no context okay. to these things you know those sort of gross youtube anonymity comments that yeah, just yeah. weren't worth having so we turned the live chat off it was really satisfying i felt very much like a grumpy like get off my fucking lawn you grumpy cunts and it was great yeah liberating lean into being the shouty old man exactly just need a rocking chair i've for a long time wanted a really nice <laughs> antique rocking chair that i can just like sit in the middle of the gym and rock back and forwards yelling at people from oh uh, yeah yeah fantastic that's yeah, fantastic. Cool. Um, fuck, I completely lost my train of thought. I had more to add to what you just said. Uh, we were yeah, talking about the context to people's systems, being able to see their thought process. Mm. I don't know where else we were going from there. Yeah. Oh, no, that's what I was going to talk about. I mean, the, the conversation around programming methodologies and, again, the ultra-theoretical chasing perfection in it... Um, if you if you ignore that for a second you take a step back and you look back uh you know look across the average person 
um, you know, no infirmity, regardless of experience level in the lifting context, between, say, ages, I don't know, 15 and 60, getting them to make progress is actually really easy with terrible <laughs> programming. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is this is how you and I built businesses. This is how you know coaches have built businesses forever. This is how brand new PTs build businesses. It sucked for a while because <laughs> yeah, it just but, worked well, anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like automatically satisfying the the base principles that drive strength adaptations and hypertrophy adaptations is not that hard. Like the, nah. there's quite a large window that you can aim for, and even if you don't hit the bullseye, you'll still see some form of progress. And as you get better, you'll hit closer and closer to the bullseye, and you'll be able to, you know, deal with nuanced situations or um, make progress where progress is much more difficult to make, and all of that jazz. But getting someone to make progress is not that difficult, and so this pursuit of perfection right from the start, while it's not a complete waste of time it's probably a little bit louder of a conversation than it often needs to be. Um, and if you are listening to this and you're trying to drive your own progress or you're starting out as a coach or you're a little bit lost in the conversation, all you have to do is, you know, find a method that tends to work for most people, do it consistently. Like John said, stick to your guns on that and make small changes to that methodology to enhance it as you learn more information um, and you'll be fine. You'll be fine and you, you'll end up where you are best suited to end up. You know, again, I say I use percentage based programming almost exclusively and people sometimes can cringe at that because they think I'm taking X person's max, plugging it in and out it spits numbers. It's no, how do you drive percentage based programming? It's a, it's about sticking, spitting out a training stimulus and understanding what numbers to use to drive that training stimulus and how to modify that and correct for any issues within it as you go and prescribe the right amount of volumes. It works. And so like if you start off using RPE to drive that progress, you'll find out the best way to do that, which will be a combination of RPE and percentage. You'll, if you use velocity training stuff, you'll find out the best way to use that. And ultimately they all end up being the same thing anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, velocity-based training is sort of trying to measure uh, measure perceived exertion, but without the perception. It's like a, a measured exertion. Percentage is, is exactly the same as RPE. They're, they're analogous, you know? Every number is a percentage of something, every RPE weight that you spit out is a percentage of something like it it's it's all the same shit and it's all serving the same purpose purpose providing a stimulus to adapt to it's just understanding how to use it yeah and I think that idea of getting away from the need for perfection has probably been the one of the biggest shifts in my like the fundamentals of my coaching philosophy across the board over the last 10 years has been uh one of like one of my driving principles these days is to get people working as hard as possible as quickly as possible uh both from a technique and a programming standpoint right i used to be a little bit more meticulous about my approach to technical skill uh than i am now because what i recognized the the biggest shift was in was in my ability to get buy-in from people just working hard quickly because people want to feel like they're working hard feel like they're making progress early in the piece and if that means we choose different exercises that they can execute with more effective skill you know then great if that means what we have is some skill development exercises and then a bunch of output exercises that are real simple ones that just trash them and make them feel like they've worked hard cool that works too but it's that 
needing to be or being able to be way more fluid in how my programming works because I have a better understanding of my own training principles and how the you know the fundamental training principles apply to my system and or how my system applies to them is probably a better way to look at it mm-hmm. but because of that better understanding of my own thought process I now have the ability to be really fluid in that but I think you only develop that by being actually quite rigid early on and there's an element of like giving everyone the same thing that can be really effective early in the piece because you learn what works and what doesn't for the majority of people. You know, mm. like as you talk about a shoulder's a shoulder, a hip's a hip. We all have muscles that function on the same fundamental principles. And so in theory, most of the same stuff works most of the time. Uh, but by being really rigid early, I think you can then develop the ability to be much more fluid in your approach later in life. Mm. I, I, one thing I want to add just to, to tie this conversation off um, is that we can the the myth in in powerlifting and strength training like the snowflake myth is the idea that people adapt to different stimulus that you are better suited to a certain t- style of training than other styles of training and it's so unique to strength sports and it's because strength sports is a um, dead end street scientifically you know it's it's such a bro science land and so if you look at you know someone training for for marathons or triathlons or whatever the training is the same you train someone to be good at the training that you give them and it's exactly the same in lifting if i want my lifters to be really good at sets of 10 i can do that i can make them adapt to doing sets of 10 if i want to make them good at doing singles i can do that and so we get to decide what you respond to as coaches like that we can literally do that um it's one big take home i i got from my mentoring with pat davidson it's because i was i've always wondered about this i've always thought you know this idea of phasic programming if we spend long enough in each phase we can change the way that someone uh responds to certain styles of training um just think of the uh, the general idea of work capacity or something you can change how much work someone can do uh so you know we don't have to get so caught up in finding the perfect program for the perfect person. We just have to find a programming model and structure that we know how to use and then can apply individuals to. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's um the So we talk about homeostasis in physiology. The term uh it's allostasis. Allostasis. <laughs> yeah. The idea of like predictive regulation. So your body is predicting the demands to come and allocating resources effectively based on prior experience, exposure, distress, those sort of things. So it's this constantly fluid motion towards adapting to what's to come. And if what's to come is reasonably predictable, then you'll make that adaptation relatively quickly. Uh, and, and I think for me, again, that's the, the big shift has been in realizing just how incredibly adaptable we are as an organism, right? Like a, mm. as a, as an animal, we can adapt to so, so much and such a wide ranging stimulus that it gives you so much more freedom to like be really fluid in how you do your training process. Because instead of being like, oh no, we have to rigidly fucking bash away at strength and peaking and strength and peaking and strength and peaking, mm. we can like take a few months to just like pursue something else and then come back to it and know that like actually we've refreshed you for that stimulus a little bit. Maybe you are going to make some more progress having been a bit away from it and come back to it and Mm. yeah i think that opening my eyes to how much more variety is you're capable of uh, of dealing with variety and stimulus 
as long as the long-term trend is in the right direction has been, yeah, incredibly eye-opening. Mm. And allostasis is, it, for you guys listening, like you, you experience this all the time and you probably just don't know about it. Like a couple of really good examples that come to mind. If, you, if you're sitting down at a chair for a while and there's stairs in your house and you quickly walk up the stairs, your heart rate will be through the roof and you'll be breathing really heavy. It's not because you're unfit. It's because your body's saying, okay, fuck, we're about to do a shitload of this stuff. We need to be shuttling oxygenated blood around. It's getting ready to do activity. Or yeah. you smell food and you start salivating. Or yeah. you're starving and you eat a bit of food and you get way more hungry. It's yeah. your body being like, oh, we're about to eat. We got to turn up like the, yeah, the yeah. eating cylinders. It's really cool to see. Anyway. Yeah, and it's, it's the idea that it's not so when you are first exposed to the idea of homeostasis it's described as like a set point but the idea is that that set point isn't actually a set point it's a it's a window of parameters that you are constantly being moved backwards and forwards through based on the prediction of what's to come hmm. anyway if you're interested in joining the uh peak speak physiology school we've got an intake coming up in uh, three months <laughs> just email sam at peakspeak.com he uh does everything <laughs> for us so yeah, we just talk shit. That's exactly. Great. <laughs> well, I Goodbye. got nothing to add. Bye.